what's the value exchange? You know, I think too many people just expect, oh, here's my thing. Can you, can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? Like everything's about relationships and energy exchange. Go for the easy yes. Go for the easy yes. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people who live behind the curtains in a very particular world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. My next guest is a special one and one that I have been looking forward to bringing you for a while. Lisa Messenger. She's the game-changing CEO of the Messenger Group, as well as founder and, until recently, the editor-in-chief of Collective Hub magazine, an entrepreneurial lifestyle magazine distributed into over 37 countries with a global cross-platform community of millions. Now, I, I'm usually a firm believer in the phrase, you cannot be what you cannot see, and those that listen frequently will have heard me say it multiple times. But Lisa and the organization she sat at the helm of has broken this mold time and time again. I have watched them break this mold time and time again, as you have probably noticed from the preview at the start of this episode. She has co-authored 16 books. In fact, she has usually, honestly, written a book in the time it takes me to actually think of a decent title for a book. She is also an absolute authority in the territory of startups, punching above your weight when it comes to influence and the world of entrepreneurship. But more than that, way more than that, she is also one of my dearest friends. Now, I've wanted to interview Lise on the show for a while and diaries and life got in the way as they do. But actually, now I'm pretty grateful that it took us this long to get this conversation locked in. Because if we had managed to sit down a year ago, two years ago, our chat would have been very different than the one that we had. We would have talked about what it takes to start and build a media empire with no experience. Although, don't worry, we do definitely talk about that. We would have probably spoken about the hustle, scaling up, growing globally at a rapid speed. And although, again, we do, we do cover that. However, when this particular day rolled around, something surprising had happened. Lisa had just announced that she was closing Collective Hub magazine in the, in the form of a letter on the front cover, no less. I don't know how many of you saw that. And that was to the surprise of not only those around her, but the entire media world, who up until that point had been watching both her and the magazine's trajectory just with a, a look of quizzical awe on their faces. So... Rather than racing through an interview and heading back to our respective worlds, which is what I thought that our conversation would be, instead, we took a quiet afternoon because she had a quiet afternoon and weirdly enough, so did I. We ate some soup. We took a bowl of blueberries into her bedroom. We bunkered down and we talked it all out. In this conversation, you'll hear Lisa with her usual, did she actually just say that, frankness, share the lessons she's learned at every point along her epic journey. From her first venture to her first book, her first big win, her first big loss, and finally, the last issue of The Collective, and that particular chapter as she knew it. In particular, we dive into hustle, tips for getting the door open and putting the right people in the room, self-belief, how to understand the particular value you can bring, and having the guts to state that, purpose, unearthing the power that sits behind your bigger why, Getting the easy yeses, again, you'll have heard a lot of people on this podcast talk about how important getting an easy yes is, simple yeses when it comes to influencing people, especially investors, by the way. And perhaps most importantly, walking away, knowing when it's time to walk away and having the resilience to let what you have built, what you have loved and what has essentially defined you for a long time. And this was a really really interesting conversation for me to have knowing her the way that I do. In some ways, it was the least prep I've ever had to do for an interview and I am known for over-prepping because I already knew her story. And I also already knew in many ways the stories behind the stories. However, in more ways than I knew, I really didn't. 
Because how often do you ever actually sit a friend down and ask them to tell you everything? Probably not as often in my life as I should, as became clear. So what more to say? This is a very special conversation with a very special person in my world. Talking startups, opening doors, hustling, purpose, leading when it feels like you haven't got a clue and none of us have a clue, hint. And finally, knowing when the time has come to walk away. So please sit back, enjoy my conversation with the ever amazing and always surprising Lisa Messenger. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa Messenger. Thank you very much. <laughs> so strange to introduce you so formally. Welcome, I know. <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Lisa. There we go. That just feels better. Thanks, Jules. <laughs> My good friend of 15 or so years. 15 years. How many times? We're sat on a bed at the moment. With, with my dog in my gym gear. <laughs> How many times have we, we've done this over the years? Hundreds, thousands, a lot. A lot, a lot. It's the first time we've done it recorded though. Now we're doing it for the world. Yeah. All right, well, let's just get into it and we'll just talk and let's see if we can see what comes out because, Mm. as I said, this is the the podcast that I have prepped for the least in any of the podcasts I have ever done. But probably the person you know the most. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting. Mm. So let's kick off with usual question, what I would usually kick off with, which is, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? Ah, introvert. Yeah. And it, that's interesting. What do most people say? Because I think, and I know a lot of my speaker friends and people who outwardly or overtly do big things in the world would often also say, when they look at it closely, that they are introverted. So I display extroverted qualities and people who see from the outside would see me on the stage a lot or, you know, being very publicly interfacing. But yeah, I am most comfortable sitting on the bed having a chat like this <laughs> or in nature or, you know, refueling myself with very, very simple things. It's really interesting because the reason I asked the question is, is a genuine curiosity because of working with so many influencers and working with so many people mm. who have extroverted roles in the world. And discovering kind of the hard way or behind the scenes that most of those people would consider themselves to be absolutely introverted. Yeah. And then also being out there in the world and hearing the story that I couldn't do what they do because I'm not an extrovert. There just seemed to me to be this giant disconnect. And I think that what I'm finding the more I ask the question is that most people would say either very few, I think only one person has ever said they consider themselves to be an absolute extrovert. Mm. The rest would say I refuel by myself. Mm. I need loan time to be able to do what I do. And yeah. I have learned the traits of an extrovert because I've had to yeah, as yeah. I go along, which suggests that the traits can be learned, which I also love. Oh, fascinating. And we could go for an hour just on this topic. It just gave me shivers because I think that's the thing. And it's like anything. I always say, do life your way. What works for me works for me. Like, you know, be counterintuitive to the norm or buck the status quo or color outside the lines, however you want to say it. And don't just believe the hype or what you see as an outward facing thing, because, you know, I talk a lot about energy exchanges or value exchanges, and it could be the currency is cash or it could be something else. And I think for any of us who are giving a lot of ourselves or living big in the world, when you're in front of people, it's often a one-way energy exchange in terms of people are sapping that energy and they're wanting you to be a guru or to drag everything out of you. And so that's why we probably come home sometimes feeling drained or sapped if we don't know how to manage that. And then we need to refuel or reinvigorate ourselves, you know, in that quiet, alone time of solitude. So yeah, so it's also learning the boundaries and learning the tools, I think, to be able to make it more of a two-way energy exchange so you're not just constantly being drained and you can actually live that life of an extrovert wholly and actually start to enjoy it. Because as you get bigger, I think, or you step more into your purpose, often that is an expectation or something that we need to be able to get comfortable with. And for me, absolutely, that's become a learned trait. And you would remember back from my early days of speaking when I, my first speaking gig for my own book launch in 2004, I was meant to do three cities, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney. I did Brisbane. They didn't even invite me back to do my own two gigs in the next two cities. I was so bad. So I had to learn this. I had to learn this. It goes against everything that is natural for me. 
it's similarly with I remember one of when I started the when we started the talent management agency one of the things that I quickly got asked to do was to introduce a lot of the speakers we were working with a lot of media personalities can you come on and read their introduction uh-huh. and I remember sucking so badly at that that I got halfway through an introduction my body just freaked out <laughs> and I just stopped the introduction and walked off the stage and the person who's still a good friend of mine now the person I was introducing looked at me and he was like am I I'm on <laughs> okay and it was that experience it was that experience of not feeling like I had done myself justice and not feeling like I had done that person who I respected Mm. and thought the world of justice Mm. that made me go out there and actually do I went I did a Toastmasters course which is Mm. the course you traditionally do if you need Mm. to do a stag do speech yeah I showed up I lied about what I did for a living because I was so embarrassed yeah 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 and figured out the tools and that started like a you know, a 10-year journey into, you know, what are these tools? How do you break them down? Mm. And then how can you how can you use them to help other people? But that was the beginnings. It was just an acknowledgement of how badly I sucked yeah. as an introvert at this. I mean, it's such an important message for everyone. I think they see, and, you know, I do this in inverted commas, but a level of success or whatever. And there so many people are like, oh, it's okay for you because, and I think what's so important is to debunk those myths and say, no, every single one of us is making it up as we go. So many of us, you know, lacked the confidence or the feeling of self-worth or, you know, we're sabotaging or holding ourselves back or keeping ourselves small or whatever it is going on for us until we were courageous enough to learn those traits and to step into a truer, more real version of who we're meant to be. So, yeah, for anyone listening, do not worry. Just keep persevering and learn the tenacity and the resilience and the grit to just make it whatever it is that you want it to be. So I wanted to I wanted to start by going backwards. Oh yes. <clears throat> let's go let's go back in time. And how I wanted far to back? <laughs> how far back. Good question. I wanted to go back to I don't know if you're even going to remember this. It was about 6 years ago and I was sat on my sofa in my pajamas and you came over. I was living in Balmain at the time. Mm, and I remember it. Yeah, you came over <laughs> and sat on my sofa and you said, I'm shutting everything down. Literally, the book publishing company that you had that was that was very successful, you were like, I'm shutting it all down. I'm keeping skeleton stuff. I'm shutting it down. Wow, did I say that? Yeah. Shivers. Like, I just got shivers from that. Wow. You're like, I'm shutting it all down and I am, I'm going to start a magazine. Yeah. I'm going to start a magazine. And I remember looking at you thinking, have you, have you taken a look at the, the magazine publishing industry recently? It's not doing overly well. And you're like, nope, I just know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I've just got absolute clarity and I'm doing it. And within a month, I think you had, I think you You shut. sent me the song though. I after did send that. you the song. What was that? And that it was, was about, oh, it's incredible. I wish I could remember the lines Emily, right now. It's Emily Sunday. <clears throat> Read all yes, about it, it. Read all about it. Read all about it. Far out. I got off your couch. I said, I'm going to start a magazine. You sent me that song. I started listening to it. And you know what? That is extraordinary. And thank you. Because I think it's so much sometimes that external validation piece or just someone saying, and thank you for being such a good friend for so long, read all about it. And I remember driving and thinking, yeah, this is strength. This is power. I've got this. What I'm curious about now, looking back now, I'm not wearing my pajamas, although I am still sat on a bed just kind of like a sofa you had influence it's just you know talk about influence for a second you had influence. Yeah. you had a book publishing company you had staff you were you were doing really well you were instrumental in getting amazing ideas out there in the world and yet you swapped it for something that you had no influence in yes at that point in time at all when yes. you were the complete underdog yes why and how did you get your head around that choice yeah, and we'll step into talking about the much larger iteration of that because I've just done that for a second time, but in a much, much, much larger scale. Going back to that point, I guess it's like, you know, it's an old adage and it's a cliche and I guess it's a cliche for a reason, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I had a, yeah, it's interesting you say I had influence. <laughs> Every, I suppose I did at the time, but I literally had three staff. I'd been running a business for 11 years at the time. And I couldn't work out how to scale it. It was comfortable. I was earning great money and I was working with great clients, but I was kind of bored, you know? And I just, I was surrounded by so many incredible 
influential, inspirational people and these amazing entrepreneurs. And I just thought there's got to be something bigger. And yeah, what was interesting, and I think this is probably one of the most important points I can make, is I started with a very simple idea. And it was where there was a gap in the market, having run businesses for 11 years as an entrepreneur and being frustrated, kind of going, I'm surrounded by these amazing people, yet I'm living in this bubble. How do we take this to the greater population, the mass market? I was producing books one-on-one for individuals as marketing tools. And so I was spending a lot of time with them, but it was very one-dimensional. And so I guess my only logical thing was I knew how to do print, although books, as I said, are very one-dimensional in comparison to a magazine, which is a very unwieldy, very large, complex beast. So that was as simple as my idea was. I was like, I want to inspire and reach more people. Oh, I know all these influential, inspirational people. Let's smush them all together and put them into one format. Oh, a magazine sounds like a great way to do it. What was interesting, as you said, was that I was entering a highly saturated market, one that people were saying was dead or dying. There were, and I didn't know at the time, over five and a half thousand print magazines that already existed in Australia alone. And whilst I had some, thank you, very kind of you to say, influence in my existing sphere, I had never worked in media. I'd never worked for a magazine. I had three staff all under the age of 25, none of whom had ever worked in media or magazines. Going into a highly saturated market that people said was dead or dying. (laughs) And so, you know, that was a great place to start. But what's interesting is I literally just had my purpose. I want to inspire more people. And What's more interesting about that is once you understand and are so clear on what your why or your purpose is, you actually don't need to worry about the how. It tends to have a way of sorting itself out and the synchronicity and the serendipity that follows is incredible. So yeah, as you know, within 18 months, the print magazine was in 37 countries and many, many, many other things we can talk about. (laughs) Again, I remember over another cup of tea in a kitchen somewhere, Mm. you had just got back from a conversation with, I think it was either... It was another magazine where they had been asking you about, you know, who's your designer for this magazine? Have oh, they worked yeah. in Paris? And yeah. you were sat there thinking, my designer's a, was, a, was she 20, 21? Yeah, I think Jade was 21 at the time. She started with me as, uh, she started with me when she was 19 as an intern in content. So she wasn't even a designer. And the amazing thing was I saw ability in people, I think, before they saw it in themselves. And she started tinkering and playing with design. (laughs) And so when I decided to launch the mag, I was like, oh, do you want to try and be the art director? And that meeting, and you remember well, was I took a chance. And about six months after launch, I got on a plane. I Googled. Google is your great friend when you're a startup and you have no idea what you're doing. I got on a plane to the magazine I think it was a magazine conference in Rome. And I just took a punt and I thought, I better go see if I'm on the right page here. And so I spent the whatever it was to get there. And that paid off in spades. I mean, you can't spend, I don't think, enough on educating yourself or, you know, surrounding yourself with other extraordinary people. And that night I sat next to Martha Stewart's vice president and the global syndication manager for the New York Times. Amazing. On the bus, actually, on the way to this dinner on night one. And both of them said, wow, we love your passion. And people fall in love with passion, you know, and they want to help you. And they said, if you're going to be in New York, come and meet with us. And so, yeah, I was in New York three days later. (laughs) So there I was with Martha Stewart's vice president talking about, you know, my amazing designer. And she literally did, you remember it right? She said, wow, this design's incredible. You know, is it someone from Paris, New York or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, it's Jade and she's 21 and she's never designed anything before. And that afternoon I was sitting in the New York Times page one editorial meeting with 18 divisional editors. So, you know, extraordinary journey. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of something else that you, I've heard you say so many times, which is money is not the only currency. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking there about, you know, passion being, passion being one currency, which it, I think, it's hard to see passion as a currency when you're the passionate person. You see it as a driving force, but not so much a currency. But when you're on the other end, when you've got people who are asking you to invest in something or you've got people who are asking you to come on board with something, yeah. actually passion is one of the primary currencies that you buy into. 100%. And 
as you know, I've written six books since I launched the magazine and we can get into that purposefully to write them in parallel to what was happening so that people could understand the story behind the story and it would be relatable and attainable. But the second book in the series is called Money and Mindfulness, which is all about there are more currencies than cash and you can do good in the world and make money and the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I say to people so often, particularly in the startup world, people are always like, I don't have money or I don't have anything to sell yet or blah, blah, blah. And so they keep themselves small and they hold themselves back. And so I always say, well, what are your saleable, tangible assets? What do you have? If, if you don't have a product or a service that yet exists, what is it? And often it is that passion or that vision. And it's the ability to be able to explain that to people and get them to buy into it and believe in you and the project before it even exists. I mean, so many of us have to learn that skill, I think. I mean, I sold that magazine eight months out from launch and got people finally after knocking on 79 doors, someone said yes. And I was selling, and we can get into that if you want, but you know, something that didn't yet exist. You were literally selling blank pages at that point. I was selling blank pages. And I mean, we can get into that because it's a fascinating story. And whoever's listening, don't, don't take from this anything about media, but try and draw a parallel to whatever it is that you're doing. But whilst I was entering this industry that people said was dead or dying and other people were selling a flat ad on a page for say $10,000, the first issue of that print magazine cost me $350,000. So I would have had to, at that rate, sell 35 ads to a product that didn't yet exist to someone who had no experience in an industry that was dead or dying. And I probably would have had to discount the ads to half price. So I would have had to sell 70 ads prior to a product existing just to underwrite the cost. So instead of that, I thought, I'm going to have to amp this right up. And the first package I sold was not $10,000, but $200,000. And I thought about what are my saleable tangible assets that don't yet exist, but that what can I sell someone? And so I thought, well, okay, I can speak. By this stage, I'd done some speaking. So I can give someone some speaking gigs. I will have a physical print magazine. So why don't I give them, you know, X amount of copies of the print magazine? I can give them some ads, but it's a bit boring. I can write stories, so editorial. I can do advertorial. I could do reader giveaways. And so I started thinking about what is in my potential future toolkit that I can package up and sell. And so the very first deal I did wasn't for $10,000. It was for $200,000. And that blew the roof off the expectation and the norm of what was possible in the publishing and media industry. And, you know, that put us in really good stead to do future deals and things. And again, I can remember that day. It's a, it's so interesting talking, <laughs> listening to you talk now because you're taking me back to, to all these days that I remember days almost deals. The, yeah, the moment. And tears and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and plenty of those on both sides. Yes. I think it was CBA. I yes. remember you, you talking about you were in an elevator and… You remember well. I and I burst into tears. Well, yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> you finally got… And I just think that's worth highlighting that that was the 80th door. It was. Knocked on. And… What was interesting is that it was CBA, which is a bank and traditionally they lend money and I've still never borrowed, stupidly or not, a cent for the business and they gave me $200,000. And in fact, Andy Lark, who is now on my advisory board, not only he wrote me a check, he said, would you like the money now up front? And I said, yes, I would. Thank you very much. And that meeting, I mean, I'd stalked Andy for at least three months. I mean, he was the guy to make a decision. And finally, I got in front of him. And you know what? We just we just had a conversation and we talked about life and we found some mutual ground. And luckily enough, he believed in entrepreneurs and he believed in print still. And he was prepared to back me and give me a go, you know, and that's something I will never, ever forget. And I'll talk about it until my grave because, you know, the amount is irrelevant. It could have been $20. It could have been $2 million. It actually doesn't matter. What matters is that someone beyond me believed in me. And so I was like, I don't care if you give me 20 bucks. Like I'm going to make this happen because thank you very much. It was someone outside of me. And you know what? If one person believes in you, then you just got to get your hustle on and find other people who are also going to believe in you and back you. The first one's the hardest. The first one's the hardest. You've got that momentum of being able to say such and such 
is also yeah. on board. I'm if yes. I was listening to this podcast. I think probably the primary question that would be in my brain right now, which is how do you get that door open? It's it's one thing once the door is open and you can yeah. use all of your passion and your ingenuity and your money is not the only currency and all of your assets. Yeah. But getting that door mm. open. Stock them. <laughs> and I don't say that lightly. Figuratively. Well, I mean, there's a whole lot of strategies and tactics around this, I think. I think one of the biggest things is make it easy for people to say yes. And certainly now, having been on the other side as an editor of 52 issues of a print magazine, having done over 6,000 stories, and we probably got through that period, I don't know, 100 to 200 pitches a day. And it's like, just make it easy for me to say yes. So been interesting being on the other side now. A lot of it is, I think, you know, firstly, the stars need to align. So first of all, it's like, well, who is my potential market? Who can I potentially get money from? And so I, from the start, almost go through an A to Z. I start with airlines, accommodation, like go through industry categories and kind of go, who has a similar belief system? Who shares similar values? Who has a similar audience profile? And then I go through the alphabet, like of industry categories. And then I might narrow it down and go, okay, I think, you know, accommodation, automotive, whatever, is going to be a great fit. And then I'll go for whatever I'm selling at the moment. Is it the marketing director? Is it HR? Like, And there's a whole lot of strategies around what the right fit is and what they're looking for. And then I'll find maybe five names. So, you know, industry category, what the position is, what companies sit within that category. And then it might be cold calling or there's other great strategies. Like when I was doing the book publishing company, fantastic strategy and anyone can do this now. Hi, I'm producing a podcast. I'm writing a book. I'm doing a whatever. Appeal to someone's ego. Can I come in and interview you? (laughs) I mean, it's very rare someone's going to say no to that. So then you go in, interview them. Oh, by the way, I'm doing this little thing. So it's whatever you can do to get that relationship. No one wants to be sold at first off. So, you know, or find out, do they love playing golf or <laughs> where do their kids go to school? <laughs> you know, like I've met the most extraordinary people around a dinner table accidentally in someone's home or in a place that's not a normal place of work. And it's extraordinary when you meet someone as a human in a different circumstance, you can build a relationship. I mean, I think it's that simple. Everything ultimately is about relationships and people want to do business with people they like. And then of course, you know, in the bigger corporates, there's a whole lot of boxes they need to tick and it depends on what their current strategy and campaigns and things are. But really it's about chipping away and being tenacious and not giving up, I think, until someone says yes. Yeah. And I think that the category thing is interesting. I've often found, you know, like for example, in Australia, automotive, I think is 64 different automotive companies or something. And so it's like, well, once we started having some wins with a couple of car companies, we were like, wow, people this audience, they, they really want to do business with us. So let's like hit all 64. <laughs> it's, I love the fact that you still know that. Oh, that I know, you know everything. <laughs> but <laughs> there's so much. I think that's really important because wait, wait, 10 years on now, 15 years on, however, however many years we are on. And the fact that you still know that means <sighs> that your, your head was still in the game, has still been in the game for all these years. So it obviously works because you know the stats. So you're, you obviously put your head there regularly. Yeah. So Richard Branson. So Richard Branson. So tell that story. So in November 2014, before NECA was popular, I was fortunate enough to be invited to go to his private island in the British Virgin Islands. And what there was many, many extraordinary things about that. There was only 28 entrepreneurs on the island. And we arrived there the day after the Virgin Galactic incident, horrible crash I don't remember the exact details. And so right from the beginning, I thought, oh, will Richard even turn up? And he did the next morning, 10 a.m., put his sandy feet up on his coffee table. And I said to him, why are you here? And he said three things. And this has always stuck with me. He said, as a leader and an entrepreneur, it was really important. I turned up and I faced the media and I fronted it. Second thing, it was then really important to empower the 400 or so people who actually knew what they were doing and get out of their way. And thirdly, I said I'd be here. So I'm here. And I was like, wow, I am never not going to turn up for anything again. But the bigger point around that, which we're getting to is make it easy to say yes. I then watched everyone got this opportunity to pitch to Rich. And I think everyone had like 10 minutes. And I watched 27 other entrepreneurs pretty much do a version of this hi, Richard, I've got blah, blah, blah company. Can I rename the entire thing Virgin? 
that's impossible for him to say yes to. A, there's over 400 virgin companies. Most of them are licensing deals. He is so far at arm's length from them and he's never met the person before standing in front of them. There's no relationship. So it's impossible for him to say yes. So I literally just said, hey, Richard, can I send you a box of magazines to the island every month? And he said, yes. Like it was impossible for him to not say yes. It was so easy. I'm going to send you something for free once a month. You don't have to do anything. Is that okay? Yes. Now, I was clever because I know the caliber of people who turn up to that island every month. I know that magazine's going to be in front of Richard and all his staff every month. And so it's about touch points, genuine touch points, I think. And, you know, not asking for something complex to start with. So when the time came, you know, I wrote my second book in the series, Life and Love, largely while I was on the island. And then I contacted his PA, Helen, and said, hey, Helen, would Richard consider writing a testimonial for the front cover? Well, of course, they've been getting the magazine. So she says, of course, not a problem. And then I kept touch points, touch points, touch points. I'm big on the favors bag. It's like, send people handwritten notes, send them thank yous for no reason, not asking anything about them. Just take a genuine interest in their lives. And then I saw Richard was coming to Australia 2016 to speak at the World Business Forum. And I said to Helen, hey, do you think I could shoot Richard for a cover when he's here? And she said, Lisa, I was just reading your magazine in bed last night. <laughs> you know, it's so easy. It's, it's, such a, it's a big story because it's about Sir Richard Branson, but it's about so easy just to stay in touch with people and make it easy for them. And then she said, well, while he's here, would you consider co-chairing the Virgin Way conference with Richard at the art gallery? And I was like, let me check my diary. So I ended up sitting on the stage with him for three hours co-chairing this conference and then he didn't have time to shoot the cover afterwards at the art gallery, but instead invited me to his other private island, Makepeace Island on the Noosa River for the weekend. So extraordinary things happen from just making it easy for people to say yes and then putting in the time to build relationships and not making it all about you. But how can I help you? How can I help you? As I talked about at the beginning of this, what's the value exchange? You know, I think too many people just expect, oh, here's my thing. Can you, can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? Like everything's about relationships and energy exchange. Go for the easy yes. Go for the easy yes. It's oh, the same with the advice. magazine. You know, when people, oh, these people pitching at us all day, every day, it's genuinely goes, well, we've got blueberries sitting in front of us now. Hey, I've got great blueberries, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can you, I'm like, I don't care about your blueberries. <laughs> like, let's just agree. The blueberries are great. Like, let's just agree. And then tell me where they were made. How were they made? How were they processed? What was the end to end chain? How did you get that invested? Are they organic? And then how is this information going to help my audience? Like, give me two paragraphs on that. And it's a yes every single time. If you just want to flog me, you blueberries. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> One of the most fascinating things that I think that you did, again, just from watching from the outside, that I remember thinking, now that is, I mean, she's one smart cookie anyway, but, but that was... I have my moments. That was another level. <laughs> that was a, I buy you a drink moment. You did a cover mm. and you contacted, which I just think is a strategy anyone can learn from, you contacted all the major bloggers. Yes. All the people with the largest number of people following them, listening to them, engaged with them. Yeah. Which is something that I always say, you know, go where, where are the eyes and the ears? Go mm. where the eyes and the ears are. Mm. So you went where the eyes and the ears were and then you went to all those bloggers and you said, I'm going to do a cover yeah. with Australia's best bloggers Yes, on the front cover. I will shoot you. Yes. You'll be on the front cover of a magazine. Yes. My one request is that you then share that magazine yes. with your entire network. Yes. And that I think was just the smartest Thank you. marketing strategy because again, money isn't the only currency. You had a platform at yeah. that stage. Yeah. And you got all of this marketing and mm. distribution probably with more cut through rates and it cost you probably cost you less than a normal cover because as oh, people yes. may or may not know, if you have a celebrity on your front cover, you have to pay for that. Yeah. So it's probably a cheaper cover for yeah. you than any yeah. others. Yes. And so if I go back even more, I mean what was interesting about that is launching with no ironically, in a way, since I then went on to sell media, but launching with no marketing or media budget. So within six months of launch, I had one person full-time doing monetary partnerships and three people full-time doing non-monetary partnerships. So we 
very much looked at if we don't have money to spend and we can't compete against the big boys who are out there and they own, you know, 80 plus magazines in this country and they've got massive networks and people who actually know what they're doing and everything that we didn't have. I was like, what can we do? Well, we can tap into like-minded non-competing partners who share similar customer profiles. So I will say that again because it's important. Like-minded non-competing partners who share similar customer profiles. So we literally started identifying who are all these people and what, again, value exchange, what can we do for them? What can they do for us? How can we lift each other higher? How can we collaborate and, you know, share each other's brands? And actually issue seven of the magazine, I put Gary Pepper. So Nicole Warren, who's known as Gary Pepper Girl, I was the first person in Australia to put a blogger on the cover. And so many of, I would go to events and all the editors and publishers would be like, oh, these bloody bloggers. And I was like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So she at the time had the largest following in Australia and she was a very smart business person and had a fascinating story and really, I think, exemplified that anyone with a computer and a kitchen table can start a business. So I put her on the cover and that went nuts. And then I did. Then I put five bloggers on the cover all at once. And what I did, the second part to that strategy is I then went out to artists that I knew. Um, Kerry Hess ended up being the main cover. And I said to them, can you illustrate this cover? So those five bloggers, I shot them nude. They had nude underwear on. And then I actually went to illustrators. So that was a two-part cover and got people to draw clothes of whatever they thought should be on them. And then we shared all those artists inside. So that was like a three, four-part collaboration actually because then it was a TV show, um, bloggers or whatever it was. And so part of it we actually filmed and it appeared as part of the TV show. So that's when business becomes fun because it didn't cost me a cent from a money perspective, like of course, time and creativity. But when you get like, let's find the best artists, let's find the top bloggers, let's actually film this. And it's like a win, win, win. And it lifts everyone higher. You know, that's when business is fun and it removes cash as the only currency. And really that's the entire way that collective grew. At the, at the beginning of this year, I actually sat down and went through all the people in the world that I admire who don't do business, musicians, it's mm. a collection of about six people. And I looked at how they do, how I felt like they did life, how I felt like they did business. Oh, amazing. And I wrote a list of the top 10 things that they all had in common. And it's on my, it's actually on, if you come to my house soon, there's, it's on a piece of paper on my wardrobe. It's stuck up. I stuck it up about, what a, are all the things about a week ago. Well, one of the things is that they do incredible collaborations. Oh. They are intense collaborators. And maybe that's just the people that I tend to admire, but there's something about collaborations that lifts you into another game mm. and lifts somebody else into another game. And when you combine those two games together, it's a brand new game that blows everybody's mind. It's amazing. And it's interesting because I don't know if you'll remember this. I mean, I started my first business in October, 2001, but before that I was working in sponsorship only for eight months, but I was working for Barry Humphreys and Cirque du Soleil and all these like arts and entertainment properties. And my boss at the time, the sponsorship was all about dollars. Like how much can we get from corporates to support these acts? And back then I was like, no, 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 there's got to be a smarter way. Can't we do some collaborations? Like, And he was like, are you nuts? So I like to say I've been doing this for like so long, well before it became a thing. And I think it's the smartest, smartest way to do business. And often people will go for the easy route. It might be, oh, someone's going to pay me $10,000 cash. But actually, what I want to challenge the listeners to is this. If someone has $10,000 cash to give you or they have a database of 200,000 people, what is more beneficial to you? Is them sharing your message to their audience of 200,000 more powerful than taking that instant hit of $10,000 cash? And so that's what I've thought all along. Like, what is the best use? What's the best collaboration? How can we value exchange to the best of both of our abilities to really blow both of our brands through the roof? So don't always go for the quick fix or the monetary thing. And also know that anyone listening can start a business. It's like what I talked about before. If you have something, anything that you can package up that is of value to someone else, then you can start to take it out there. And that's what's exciting. I'm going to move into a different area now. So we're just, we've gone from the sofa of collective to... <laughs> To collective literally blowing mm. up, like mm. going, going through. I remember I lost track of how many people during that 
journey, that period of our lives, it would, it would be like two or three times a week where someone would say, oh my, have you seen like Lisa Mess? She's everywhere. <laughs> like just that phrase, she is everywhere. And, you know, from, from my perspective watching, you're just, you're really just kind of cheering from the sidelines and, and wishing the best. But I was wondering how that felt for you. Like I was, when I was thinking about it, I was like, how, how did she experience that? Was there a tipping point moment where it suddenly sunk in or were you just so busy running to uh, even notice? So there's many things around that. And it's something, I wrote a chapter in my second book, Life and Love, in this series on this, because if, well, human psychology fascinates me, but I read a chapter called You're Weird Until You're Cool. Because I was like, I'm just weird, but suddenly something actually worked after 11 years and people are like, think I'm cool. And I, I was fascinated and perplexed all at the same time about, wow. And, and also loving the fact that this was available to anyone. You know, if you suddenly really believed in something enough, then you could shift from just being, you know, someone who wasn't really impacting a lot of people or having a lot of influence to suddenly someone with a lot of platform and a lot I mean, of how influence. How big was the, just for context for anybody, how big was the collective community by this stage? Uh, I mean, it happened. It happened quickly, didn't it? <laughs> it felt that way. <laughs> it did happen quickly and I feel like I need to step people through that journey. I mean, this was an idea. I was out there selling it to potential people. So as I said, about 80 different people and one of them said yes. And But I didn't actually tell any of my friends. Like I think I mentioned to you, I'm doing a magazine, but I don't think anyone got that it was actually a magazine until the day it launched. But I just knew this is going to be big. I just had this gut feeling and I started it and literally I remember my mum and I walking into a news agency and there it was between Vogue and Harper's and, you know, the actual magazines. And I was like, wow. And we launched into 3,506 news agencies and we were in airport lounges. And I think back then before influencers, people were just kind and just took photos of the cover and just shared it. And it just blew up. And my inbox just blew up. Like it was, yeah, it went very, very big, very, very quickly. I think that's the thing when you when you do something for the right reasons. People have since asked me. I know you get this as well. When I'm doing speaking gigs, they'll say things like, "Oh, how do you become famous?" Or "How do, I want to be like this," and I'm like, "What? Why?" Like I didn't, I didn't purposefully mean to become this. I just wanted to do something really cool in the world to help other entrepreneurs. I completely forgot, and I still laugh at this that putting a magazine out there meant I would be an editor and that I would actually have a platform and I would get invited to runway shows and cool gigs. Like I just didn't even think about that. So I think when you start something for the right reason and you just keep checking in every single day about what's my why and stay grounded in that, I think that's the most important thing I've seen and we've all seen this turning point. People have some level of success or notoriety and they become completely narcissistic or they stay grounded and they stay true to their why and they keep just doing it for the reason that they started. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't feel any different. I feel like I know absolutely unequivocally in every single cell in my body that anything is possible. I feel that. But I don't feel it. Look at me. I don't feel any different. Am I different? <laughs> um, are you different? It's a good question. I think in these moments, in these type of moments where it's you and me and a bowl of blueberries, yeah, and a and a, and and a, a dog, dog covered in fluff, and some <laughs> kind of dog. No, but I, I remember your life becoming a whirlwind. I remember yeah. that suddenly your life was a whirlwind. It was kind of. You know, Josh would say, well, where's Lisa? And I'd be like, I don't yeah. check Instagram. I'm not sure. She's like, there's a there's a fashion show. There's yeah, there's this, there's that, there's this going on. And that was probably one of the biggest questions that I wanted to ask you because it's certainly one that I was wondering on the sidelines. Yeah. Which was your life as a part of that, as a natural or unnatural consequence to that, your life became the leverage. You know, it mm. was, you were sharing more and more of your life online. Mm. You were sharing more and more of your life publicly. You were sharing more and more of yourself. Mm. And I often wondered whether where that line was, where you felt you were on that line. I remember sitting with you at a cafe and you had done a big interview with a newspaper 
Mm. And it was a Sunday morning and we, we were waiting for it to come out. It was like 8 a.m. on a yeah, Sunday that morning. Fun. <laughs> yeah. And I remember you sitting there looking at me going, I can't remember the exact words, but it was almost like I might have taken it too far this time. I don't know if I've shared, I think I've shared more of myself than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I know what that was about. And I, I got caught out there because it was something very personal and it was something I said to the journalist almost as a by the by after I thought the interview was over and I should have been smarter (laughs) as she was leaving the dock. Very clever journalist. Remind me to employ her. (laughs) But that was very personal. That was, I can say now because I'm comfortable, at the time it was about going through IVF and I thought it was a business interview and that was what the entire headline ran and that was what they made it about. And that disappointed me and I felt like, you know, that was very, that was very hard. And I remember my mother ringing me after that going, and because they dredged up stuff about before, you know, everything's fair play. And she was like, oh, this is awful. Why did you have to talk about that? And I said, oh, mom, shall I just move to the back of Byron and have a goat herd and some chickens? It would be easier. And she said, no, no, keep going. Keep going. You're doing well in the world. I think for me, I never, ever, ever meant to be a public figure at all. That was like the last thing on my mind. And we talk about the beginning being an introvert. Like it is so unnatural for me. What I did though was in the very first issue of Collective, the print magazine, I wrote in my editor's letter something along the lines of, I want to, you know, create this amazing media movement and um, lift everyone higher. And I have no idea what I'm doing. And the I have no idea what I'm doing was what I kind of have become the poster child for. It's like, I don't have any idea, but hey, this is working. And I think just that authenticity and vulnerability. And I realized that actually that is in part my purpose in life is that I am strong enough now and grounded enough to kind of weather a lot of what life throws at me and then live the life and then share that life to enable other people. I realize that so many people are so much living in fear and doubt and lack of self-worth and all these other things. And I realized that, well, if I can start to share my story authentically and show people that it's okay to live like that, then I'm strong enough to do that. I mean, I've definitely pulled back a lot on the personal stuff. Yes, as many people will know who followed the journey, I had a very public relationship at one point. All right, well, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I no longer share anything about my current life. Well, that's just because I think that that's interesting to explore. Yeah. And because again, I, f- I feel like I'm piecing this journey, as part of this conversation, piecing this journey together in my own mind of all the fragments of moments yes. that I remember not holding your hand through the journey, but certainly being a cheer, cheer squad on the sideline. Oh, side you've line. held my hand. We have had many we have, tears. We've <laughs> held each other's <laughs> Many laughs. Many times. There was another moment, so talking about the, the high-profile relationship that didn't work out. Yes. There was a moment, again, I think I came into your office and you had shared it very publicly, very widely on social media that you were in this relationship and you were engaged to be married. Yes, everyone, don't do that, ever. <laughs> and, and it ended and you... You were in that phase, which I think we can all, we all know that phase where you just, it's just happened. You don't want to talk about it. You're, you're still in a moment of catching your own breath around it. Yes. And I remember walking into your office and you had, which sounds funny now, but at the time I remember just holding my breath going, that breaks my heart for you. Oh. It was a pet, it was a framed <laughs> picture. <laughs> Of, of butterflies was it was it his and her pants some yeah. like a beautiful oh, artist yeah had put together his mm, and her mm. underwear for you both yeah had everything coming up and me. it was still all these beautiful engagement gifts were arriving for this yeah. community so the point of what i'm saying is that yes. this community that had bought into your life loved you yeah. and bought into your life to the point where they were sending you engagement gifts and suddenly mm. you had to turn around to this massive community and tell them this news that you were barely even got on the same page with yourself. And I remember yes. looking at you going, that is a hard, that's a really hard way to have to do it. I can't imagine doing it that way. Yeah, that was horrible. And I will never live that again. I am grateful for everything I've lived and I would never change any of it because only from that space that I've learned the lessons to know not to do that again. But yeah, there's one thing I mean, oh, here we go. We're going into this. But there's one thing like sharing, I'm so in love. It's amazing. Let's write an entire book called Life and Love, all about how fabulous it is. (laughs) Said fiancé comes home four days after you move into your house when Life and Love is number one on Booktopia. (laughs) 
and says, I don't think I could do this anymore. Take the dog for a walk. You remember that because you picked me up the day. <laughs> I, I remember that phone call. And so that is a very interesting space to be in because on the one hand, you're dealing with, I was dealing with something very personal about what just happened and is that actual or is this just a moment? And on the other hand, in parallel, I have a book about my perfect life that I am on the TV about and it is number one on Booktopia and I am having to answer questions about, wow, you're in, you know, it's amazing. And that's probably the only time in this entire journey where I haven't felt that I lived 100% authentically purely because I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't want to answer it publicly saying, well, actually this just happened because it literally just happened. And I didn't yet know if that was a forever just happened or a, oh, should we have a chat about this and work this out before I like announce it on television that, oh, actually that just didn't happen. So that was tricky, dealing with something very publicly when personally I didn't know what was going on. And so, you know, it's very beautiful now that I have a relationship that no one knows about. Sometimes you'll see the face on Instagram covered in text or something else, but no one knows about that except my very close friends. And that is the way that I absolutely intend to keep it now. You know, I think again, question, what's your purpose? My purpose for Collective Hub is to ignite human potential, three words. For Lisa Messenger, I talk about myself in third person. (laughs) It's to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. So that's what I wake up with every single day going, this is my why, this is what I live for. So does sharing my very personal life support that? No, it doesn't. People don't need to know that, you know. But other things that are personal other than my relationships that I go through in business or whatever that I feel will help other people, then yes, I will share those. And is that the line? Because that's the first time I've heard you articulate it like that. Yeah, first time I probably have. (laughs) That's because I often get asked that question Mm. by people who are looking to step out into the public sphere. Either they're looking to step out from behind a brand and build a brand around themselves or they're looking to step out into the media. It's where is this line? Where do I, me as the human being and my life end and where does the public begin? Do I have a right to a line at all? That can often be a fear or a stumbling block. talking about being in the moment let's let's just be in this moment for a second and so in this moment you have reinvented broken to use your language you have broken the collective as it was yes which we haven't even talked about which we yet. haven't even talked about yet <laughs> so most people that I talk to there's a moment where you sit down and you think this is not this is not working or or it is working spectacularly and for some reason I'm not happy yeah what was the can you remember the moment because I don't think I know what it was Yeah, so to give some context to that. So in April 2018, I decided to spectacularly, I can never say that word. (laughs) Spectacular. I thought that was beautiful. (laughs) Look, the thing is, I'm an editor, so I'm going to own that. Even if it doesn't exist, it does now. I decided to break the very thing that I had started and the thing that I kind of loved almost more than anything. And with that has come bigger lessons and more courage than anything I've ever experienced. And people often say to me now, oh, what's the highlight of your career or what's the thing you're most proud of? And I say, well, it's this, starting collective and breaking collective. (laughs) And people are like, what? And what is important to note about that is when you step truly into your purpose, be careful of what that can sometimes mean. So when I started collective with three staff under the age of 25, none of us knew what we were doing. We were disrupting and innovating every single day. We were breaking rules that we didn't know existed. You know, we were just having fun and just, ah, we were just pushing every boundary conceivable. And it was small and it was juicy and everyone was working and they were all in it for the vision and for the passion. And then suddenly, you know, it got very, very big, very, very quickly. And there were systems and processes and HR and legal and IT and kill me now, you know, all the stuff that's not my sweet spot. So I'm, I think this is really important for anyone listening to try and recognize this. You know, I am a creator. I'm a visionary. I can see things before they've even happened. I'm great at sort of building teams and getting people to do things. And I love moving forward. I am, and I'm brilliant at doing deals. Like I'm spectacular at all of that. Like there's practically not a person better. I am 
absolutely crap, like beyond crap at detail and HR and systems and processes and operations and all the stuff I talked about. Like I am so bad at it. I am dismal. I come up with the ideas. If it was left to me to implement, nothing would ever happen. And so suddenly I found that I had all these people doing all these things and it became highly inefficient. And I was feeling like I was drowning in systems and processes and having to make money and not doing the things that I loved. It wasn't moving forward anymore. I felt like I was in survival mode all the time. And I had this huge weight of, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars hanging over my head that I was responsible for. And I was like, this isn't cool anymore. And five years and 52 issues of a print mag in, I know how to do that with my eyes closed. So I wasn't really disrupting or innovating. And I was just in survival mode trying to feed all these people. And I just thought, if if I'm going to be true to my purpose and, you know, for collective igniting human potential and mine, being an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, then I can't do it like this. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to break the whole freaking thing and I'm going to break it and break it and break it until it's back to its absolute bare basics. And I can work out again exactly where the costs are, where the inefficiencies are, chop them all off and start to build again. And that's kind of the best use of me. And it's A, the most courageous thing to do because I think when you, again, authentically own something, and I very much was aware that we had something like 2.4 million people in our community that kind of rely on this thing and love it and say it's their Bible and it's supported them and given them voice and inspired them and all those things. You know, I had to be very careful about owning how I delivered that to not let them down. I mean, they're our community and they're the reason we exist. And so I just told it how it was. And I made a 32-minute video and I said, this is why I'm doing it. And I can't serve people essentially if I'm in that survival mode every day. The only way I can do it is to let myself breathe and be able to move forward again. I think that there's there's a period before that ah, that, yes. you know, you and I have have talked about in a number of different ways. And I've often thought that if I did another podcast, I would call it Let It Burn. There's, yeah. this, there's this moment where you <laughs> realise, let it burn. Yeah. Because every successful person I've ever interviewed or worked with, all, all of them, every single one, bar none, had this moment where you have to burn down everything that you thought something was mm. and everything that you thought you were in order to come out of it the other side. But the tricky part is this, is, is the part where you have to let it burn. Yes. The part where you have to stand in the fire yeah. and you have to watch something you love burn down Mm. and you have to watch your identity burn down and you really don't know in that moment the ashes that are going to be left afterwards is going to be any better or if you'll ever do anything that great again and to stand there for that period of time and watch it burn I Mm. think is one of the most formative courageous elevating moments Mm. but at the time sucks so hard Yes, sucks so hard. And what I will say is this, and it's sort of funny, you know, with Collective, so many people have said for so many years, how do I find my purpose? How do I find my why? How do I start something? Let me tell you, starting something's the easy part. <laughs> Burning it and winding out of something is so much harder. So very true. <laughs> so true because starting it, you're full of passion and energy at the end. Yeah, you especially just got to work out that how, the, how do I wind out of this? Yeah. You're also, you've... You've used up a lot of that passion, used up a lot of that energy and you're left with the embers. Yeah, yeah. However, I will say this. I know now in every single cell in my body that what my purpose is and what I'm here to do. And so it's only from that absolute innate unwavering feeling inside of every single cell in me that I was able to let it burn and be okay with it. Because you're right, so many people, you would think it's easier to hold on to something that is outwardly very successful, that your identity is locked up within. I mean, a print magazine is very sexy and everyone wants to be your friend. And so, yeah, I I would say to people, get very clear and put in the work personally to make sure that your confidence, your self-esteem is 100% intact. I mean, that's for anything. That's for letting a business burn, a relationship, anything where your identity is attached to that and without it, you feel like you're going to die. So I had to get that very much intact because yeah, outwardly, like that's losing potentially a lot of my identity. What I will say 
on the back of that is I've never felt so freaking good as I do right now. You look pretty damn <laughs> And good. it's only 10 weeks since I let it burn. And after letting it burn, I was still trying to wind out of all sorts of things. And, you know, I feel so light and free and I have time and space to create. And in the last two weeks, I have started I'm probably creating more products and more stuff at the moment. Um, than I have in the last five years because I have the time and the space. And also, I don't have the massive overheads that I had before. And I'm pulling back, you know, teams of people using specialists, not generalists, paying people on a project by project basis, as opposed to, you know, having very lofty overheads of big penthouse offices and big expensive full-time salaries. And so I'm working out a smarter, more flexible nimble way of doing things. And you also put in the time. I mean, to, yeah. to honour you and your process, you you went to Bali, you put in the time rather than continually reading the last chapter or writing the same chapter again because you haven't had chance to even fully process the fact that that one's done. I really acknowledge the fact that you built in some space. Well, and continue to do so because I mean, you say a lot of people who would let something go like that and it would be easy. And let me tell you, I have a thousand reasons to be resentful. <laughs> but, you know, there's a point holding on to stuff. I go, ah, whatever. I lost money. I made some mistakes. Would I change a bit of it? No, because I had the most extraordinary five years of my entire life. And it's the most amazing grounding and platform from which to now build something else. So I could have stayed in that and struggled on and tried to make the money back and all those kind of things. And driven myself insane and been in, you know, a sinking ship forever. Or I can go, oh, well, great. I paid a few million bucks that I lost (laughs) to actually have great experiences to have the platform for the next thing. But now it is also about this. So many people have said to me, wow, can't wait to see what you do next. Now, that could be my ego and attachment and identity going, yeah, it's going to be amazing. The truth is, I don't know. Like, I feel great. I know that I have the ability to do something incredible, but I'm also detached from outcome and I'm surrendering to the process. And I've given myself at least till the end of 2018 just to like play and do like little projects, nothing that weighs me down or keeps me, you know, attached to something long term. And just actually spend time with thought leaders and educating myself and listening to more podcasts and just feeling into what's next. And you know what? Maybe I'm next. I don't know. (laughs) And that's a big thing. Don't be attached to other people's expectations of who you should be or what you should create. Don't let their perception of your identity or, you know, them, here's another word that's not real, guritizing of you. (laughs) Don't let that entrap you into what you think you need to be next. Because I think that's that could be a scary trap to go, wow, I did something really big and really global once. If I if I chase that for the rest of my life to try and create that again, that also could be my undoing. So I'm like, I'm just actually, I'm just loving time and space like right you're, now. You're swapping one structure, one structure that felt oppressive to another structure, which is, oh my goodness, whatever I do next had better be that good. Yeah. Otherwise I'm a failure to myself. Yeah. Well, I have not and will not ask you what's next because if knowing you for as long as I've known you is anything to go by, I can guarantee you whatever it is next is nothing that would ever have occurred to me. <laughs> it's <laughs> and nothing that would be thing. on my mind. And that's the thing. I will say this. I will say this because I speak weekly to corporates about this very subject. It's like I know that collective stands to ignite human potential. And this is the third time I've said it. I am an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs living my life out loud. Those two things I don't believe will ever change, but the delivery mechanism of those or the platform or however that manifests, I have absolutely no idea. And it's not mine to know. What's mine to do is to just continue to be open to opportunities, to have big conversations, to educate myself. And then The how just has a way of working itself out. All right, sweetheart. Final question. (laughs) Ah. Final question. If I, ironically, I probably have at some stage, if I were to give you the stage Mm. and to give you a microphone Mm. and put in front of you every single person that you would ever want to influence, which I know is no small amount of people, what's the one thing? What's the one thing of all the many books 
that you would want them to know? The one piece of information I would want them to know? The one thing you would want them to walk away knowing that they didn't know before. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's just simple. It's two words. It's anything's possible. Like that sounds so simple, but the thing is I'm this little country kid from a property who grew up making mud pies and riding horses way before the internet was ever invented. (laughs) That is my age. And, you know, I entered an industry that I had no experience in and people said it was dead or dying and it was highly saturated. And, you know, what it went on to do and what it's now given me platform to do and the lives that it's impacted, like I look back and absolutely nothing makes sense and it's completely illogically logical. And I'm like, I know if you have a vision, like anything is possible. And I really want people to know that, you know, just to get out there and just have a crack. Have a crack. That's a great way to finish. (laughs) My wise words of wisdom, just have a crack. Lisa Messenger, have a crack. (laughs) All right, honey, I'm going to let you get on with your day. I'm going to get off your bed. (laughs) It has been so nice sharing my bed with you. (laughs) Let's do it again. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.